The Guardian. Stress tests passed, growth figures buoyant, and BP's oil leak plugged. In our final show before the summer break, we're looking for reasons to be cheerful. But are there still reasons to be fearful? I'm Aditya Chakraborty, and this is the Business Podcast. Joining me this week, I have the Guardian's banking expert, Jill Trainer, our economics editor, Larry Elliott, and our special guest from Royal Holloway's School of Management, Professor Brendan McSweeney. Hello, all. Hello. 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 Late in the show, we'll be giving you our picks for your summer reading. Our panellists will be telling us what business books they'll be taking to the beach, the golf course, or perhaps just a sunbed. We'll also have an interview with author Paul Seabright on his much-acclaimed economics book, The Company of Strangers. But first, let's lie back and contemplate some things that might raise the cheer in an otherwise gloomy economic landscape. First, we're back in boomtime Britain. Yes, the economy's growing as fast as it did in the heady days of 2006. Hooray! At a quarterly rate of 1.1%. Second, the bank's all right. Hooray! Yes, regulators last week gave a clean bill of health to nearly all of the major European banks. Only a handful flunked the so-called stress tests and none of them were British. And this just in. Poor old BP may be about to make a massive turnaround. Not only has the oil leak stopped, for now anyway, but the company's brought in a new broom, Robert Dudley, to replace former chief exec Tony Hayward. Right, let's get your votes in first then. BP's prospects, who's cheerful, who's fearful? Larry, let's start with you. Uh, I'm I'm upbeat on BP. I think that I was saying to people downstairs... Uh, about a month ago that I thought BP share price had bottomed out and that the canny investor would buy into BP because I assumed the leak would eventually be uh, repaired, which I think it probably has been. And I can only see one way that oil prices are going to go in the next 10 or 15 years, which is upwards. So I would have said that BP is a long-term hold or buy for a pension fund or an investor. Did you take your own advice at the time? Well, we're not allowed to, obviously. We have very strict rules about it. But um, I was certainly certainly convinced that BP, when they got to about £3 a share, were massively undervalued and would, and would, and would rise because all the bad news was in the market. And I think um, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's a real recovery stock. Jill Trainer, BP. Cheerful or fearful? Well, you can see from the share price reaction today that the fact that they've reported one of the biggest quarterly losses in British corporate history has been taken in its stride, reflects what Larry said, is that this price had fallen dramatically. The long-term investors I speak to in the city who look after our pension funds and such like have all actually, I think, been largely supportive of BP. And this may surprise you, many of them are actually really quite sad that Tony Hayward's had to go for what they actually see as a series of PR gaffes rather than any... Managerial problem. Massive managerial problem. Now, clearly, PR gaffes and managerial issues must go together. But there is an element of, I think, that I, I think there are a number of people out there who, who might have hoped that Hayward had a chance to hang on. Brendan McSween, uh, cheerful or fearful for BP? Cheerful. I, I don't uh, regret Hayward's departure. And for reasons, particularly <laughs> those that Larry set out, uh, I'm optimistic but also there's a lot of evidence of, of overreaction by, by, uh, the, by the markets. I mean, a classic example was um, Chorus, whose shares the plummeted. The Yeah. Uh, shares plummeted down to about four pence and a number of analysts saying not worth it at four, uh, four pence. And 
Within a year or so, they were sold at 668 pence. So there's, there's a lot of evidence of overreaction. So I, I think the shares, uh, I, I'm optimistic. Um, which takes us to kind of a bigger question, really, which is if we're all cheerful for BP, should we not be slightly fearful for the environment? Because what you're effectively saying, Larry, is oil prices are going to rise because we still can't find an alternative to oil and we're still going to be returning to the old days of offshore drilling. It may be off Libya this time, off the coast of Libya this time, off the coast rather than off the coast of America. But is that, is that really good news for the rest of the world? No, it's not. That wasn't the question. The question was, was it good news for BP? I think that, you know, what my analysis of where we are is that we're maybe part of the way through the financial crisis, but we've yet to address the other two crises out there. One's an energy crisis and the other's an environmental crisis. And I think that BP is going to do well because there's an energy crisis out there. There is a shortage of fossil fuels, probably going to start running out fairly soon. And therefore, what is what the stuff that is in the ground is going to be quite hard to find, but it's going to be quite expensive. And therefore, the oil price is bound to go up. And therefore, BP, which is an oil exploration company, is going to do well out of that in the short term. And, um, but I don't, I don't think there's any any way in which the oil prices are going to go back down to the levels we saw at the end of the 1990s when it was below $10 a barrel. I mean, you know, let's face it, it's been around $70 a barrel, even though the world economy has been really struggling in the last 12, 18 months. So that, it seems to me that it's much more likely that the oil price in two or three years' time will be $100 a barrel than it will be $40 a barrel, in which case BP will do okay. But that's not good news, obviously, for the for the, for, for the for energy, and it's not good news for the environment. Brendan McSweeney, one of the things that was talked about when the news of how bad the Gulf leak was, was that Obama could use this as an opportunity to turn America from being oil-dependent to being more reliant upon other forms of energy. And yet last week we saw that America effectively killed off its climate change bill. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Obama is a very difficult uh, a, a position at the moment, and I can understand why he's been ranting on about BP and using BP as a, as, as, as a target. But I don't expect to see any fundamental change in in environmental issues in in the US. And I, I agree with Larry. I think, given the growing scarcity of oil, the prospects are for increasing uh, oil prices. Last week, I was relaxing drinking chai on the Bosphorus and it was was quite shocking to see the number of tankers that that went by really brought home to me the our our continuing dependence on on oil so in all our it's all our interest that we we do see change but I think it's going to be extremely slow and we're going to continue to be dependent on oil ever scarcer sources for in, in our lifetime and Jill let's bring this discussion crashingly down market Tony, Thank you. Tony Howard. Hayward. Turn to me. <laughs> Tony Hayward and Robert Dudley. What's the difference between the two of them? Well, one's an American. Yeah. One's And history. has a deep affinity for, for, for the Gulf, for the American Gulf, we're told. Indeed, that's what we're told. He's an American. He hardly say anything else, could he? He say, I don't really care to toss about the Gulf. <laughs> well, that was, that would, that that was a, what the predecessors said. That would be a bit of a gaffe, wouldn't it? <laughs> Do it once would be OK. Do it twice, probably not so good. This is the story of my life. I get asked a question, I'll be asked. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the thing about Robert Dudley is that he's not Tony Hayward. You know, when Lord Brown had to leave so embarrassingly in 2007, you know, the argument at the time was it was Hayward or Dudley, and Hayward was the obvious man. The thing about Dudley is that it's the first time this company, let's face it, British Petroleum is going to be run by an American. Um, most of the people in the city, I mean our city, uh, you know, our square mile, believe that he's been picked because he is an American, that he will get on with Obama, that he will be able to restore this reputational damage um, in the States. I mean, the, the, the one thing that's got to be said about him is that he is an oil man. I mean, he does know his business. He came from Amoco. 
Um, he's one of the big survivors from that Amoco deal. But he's also made his home in London. I mean, this is where he lives. This is where his family are. So but he's a typical he's a modern varied, multinational businessman. Well, I think he then. probably is. And I, I mean, he seems to also, you talked about his affinity for the, you know, that bit of the golf in, um, in, in America. <laughs> I was but only he's, thinking But he's clearly release. had a very, you know, he's had a very international um, career. You know, I'm sure I don't need to remind our listeners about the problems he got into in Russia when his office was bugged and he had to get kicked out. And, you know, so, you know, let's face it, he's put up, he's had some pretty tricky situations himself to deal with. Right then, from BP to the, the banking industry. Cheerful or fearful? Jill, let's start with you. Are you allowed to be in between? No. Um, I think, well, I can't... I Come can, on. I can see reasons to be cheerful. Black or white? Well, grey. You see, I can, I can see reasons to be cheerful. You know, the fact is, I'm going to be reporting about Royal Bank of Scotland's results a, a, a week on Friday. You know, it looks as if there are some people out there who think, blimey, they might actually make a profit for the first time since we bailed them out two and a half years ago. Um... You know, banks are still accruing lots of money for their bonuses. Um, the bad debt situation is nowhere near as bad as we thought. But at, but in the back of my mind, I just can't get rid of the idea that it feels very fragile. You know, bank lending is so low. You know, we only have to know from Vince Cable's green paper how frustrated the government is about how you're going to get money flowing around the economy. Um, and banks don't sit and hoard capital for no reason at all because they'd rather be putting it to action and getting some money on it than sitting on it, whatever the government says, I think. Um, and I also just can't stop lurking in the back of my mind that, you know, is there going to be a sovereign debt crisis in Europe? Is the Eurozone going to survive? Is Greece really just sitting on borrowed time? I, I So I guess I'm more optimistic than I was, but I still have anxieties. That sounds like a cheerful to me. It's great, I told you, but you wouldn't let me go in between. Brendan McSweeney, <laughs> cheerful or fearful on banks? Um, like Jill, I'll try and kind of put a middle way. In, in, in the short term, I'm, I'm cheerful in the sense of I don't believe we're going to have a double dip recession. I'm cheerful if you want to put a banker's hat on in terms of the prospects for, for, for the banks. So, I, I, so that's it. That's cheerful then. That's cheerful. Right. What I'm not cheerful about is I don't – I think the issue of uh, lending is a, a major problem that, that that's not – being adequately uh, addressed, and I'm a former banker myself. I'm, I'm still wearing sackcloth and ashes, and that. But on, on the <laughs> very expensive the, sackcloth, the, the, indeed. Yeah. The, the the retail side, I think the um, priority in British banks has been on the speculative, the casino side, and and the retail banking of lending to businesses has been de-emphasized de-incentivized and in many ways uh, uh, centralized. I think unless there's major structural changes and for what you overuse the word cultural change inside banks, I think the problem of, of rationing of lending is going to con continue. So I'm pessimistic about that. But in terms of, and I'm also pessimistic in the kind of the longer term that the imbalance of the British economy, the overemphasis on so-called services, financial services, and the de-emphasis in manufacturing, there's a recognition of that, but I'm not sure how that's going to be resolved. So optimistic in the sense of we're not going down the tube at the moment and we continue. But in the longer term, I think the fundamental problems are not being addressed. We'll come back to the UK economy in a, in a second, but on banks, you're cheerful. Cheerful about their prospects, yes. Okay. Larry, I either want the Bolsheviks or the Tsar. I don't want a provisional government. Okay, well, I'm fearful. For banks? I'm fearful for banks. Why? Three reasons, I think. One, I don't think much has changed culturally. I think this is still the same people in charge with exactly the same mindset and that as soon as things pick up and the, uh, the governments take the foot off the throat, they'll be back to their bad old ways. 
Secondly, I think that it's possible to conceive a way the banks can grow their way out of this problem in the way they did in the 1980s after the sovereign debt crisis in Latin America, where they they, they just parked, they had loads and loads of bad debts, which they just, they just put to one side, and, but they, they grew out of it in a time of a real global boom between 1982 and 1988. I don't see that happening this time. And thirdly, I think if that happens and they, and they do get into a low growth, you know, bad debt, whether it's private debt or sovereign debt problem, which I think they probably will do, there's no money there to bail them out a second time. I mean, that's what really worries me, that if there is, a, if there is anything approaching a double dip or a period of slow growth, which means they, they have all this toxic stuff on their books for a long time, there's not really, uh, there's not really the government financial power to, to, to bail them out a second time. So for those three reasons, I am fearful. Gio. I agree with him about the, in, in terms of the fact that there are many people at the top of the banks who haven't changed at all. And it's quite interesting that, you know, HSBC, for instance, a bank I write about quite often, biggest bank in the world, second biggest bank in the world, depending on daily stock market movements, uh, you know, had a, got very frustrated during this year when they wanted to give pay rises to their top bosses and the city wouldn't let them. You know, they were, you know, Stephen Green, a man who is supposedly, um, very much involved in ethics and all the rest of it, was very frustrated at a press conference I was at where he was being told he couldn't give pay rises to people. I don't think that that point about culture and about pay, I think the people who work in the city, that their entire motivation, with all apologies to the person sitting opposite me who has just confessed to being a former banker, former. It, 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 I did say former, um, <laughs> it, 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 that their motivation is money. I mean, clearly we all get out of bed in the morning to go and earn our crust. I mean, you know, that there aren't many people who are able to go to work to earn no money at all. But I think in the city, it is the thing that that, that motivates people. And that certainly hasn't changed. I, I th- and Larry's point about debts is interesting. The only thing that I feel more optimistic about debts is that the Asset Protection Agency, which now has 230 billion of assets that Royal Bank of Scotland can't deal with and which we as taxpayers are looking after. I interviewed the chief executive of that uh, just last week or might have even been this week. You know, He's actually a man who can see that the assets are, are going away. He thinks he may even be out of a job in 2012. You know, now that is a reason, I think, to feel vaguely optimistic that at least this massive bad debt problem, yes, it was part of the taxpayer, Larry, and yes, there doesn't seem to be a boom to get us out of these bad debts, but they do seem to be able to tackle them. Brendan? I think there's a sort of a linguistic issue here, the, 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 the notion of investment and investment banking most of this is, is purely speculative activity. It's like the old uh, medieval co- uh, clipping of coins. N- nothing new was produced, but people clip the edges of coins or they sweat a coin. So there's all this churning of money and large bonuses and fees been taking off, but nothing real uh, uh, taking place. I think it was in the kind of 18th century, one of the great advantages that Britain was supposed to have was a more sophisticated banking system, whereas the French relied on kind of personal relations like dragon den type activities. And that that... Insofar as that, and it does exist in, in, in Britain, it's low status and all the energy, all the rewards and the control of the banks primarily goes to the speculators. They're not investing. They're, they're, they're speculation. So I agree very much the same ple- people, the same institutions in place. So I, I don't see any fundamental change there. And insofar as if there is a double depreciation, the money ain't there. And that's why I think we need to bring about some kind of structural change, Paul Vockler's or narrow banking, whatever, some uh, separation has to take place so that the ordinary activities of banks are guaranteed and the rest, they can go to hell, which at the moment they have free insurance from us as taxpayers. And finally, the big one, the UK economy. Brendan, are you cheerful or fearful? 
in, in the short term, I think that we're going to plod along. There isn't going to be a major disaster, but I think there's fundamental problems in the British economy that just ain't being 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 addressed. I mean, uh, even financial service. Look over the last say ten years or so, even the number of, of new jobs created was 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 quite small. Most of the jobs came in either public sector or public sector funded areas. So uh, I think the kind of destruction of manufacturing, which intensified or uh, under Margaret Thatcher, primarily because of anti-trade unionism, and then continued under our beloved leader Tony Blair, who believed in the the, um, the sort of the the um, weightless economy. I think we, there's a long way to to go back, and and so much resources are now and uh, have moved eastwards. So I'm pretty fearful of, of, of the long term. If I were a young man again, instead of emigrating from Ireland to Britain, I might have think about emigrating to, to, to somewhere else. So Where? In the short China? Term, China, maybe, or Turkey, or India, or somewhere like that, yeah. But in the short, let's say, to medium term, I don't see any major disaster. I just see Britain sliding into d- decline. There are structural problems, but there's also illusions, this illusion of, of, of imperial power. I mean, the... the fantasy in Afghanistan and Iraq and so on. You know, let's wake up. It's a middle-range economy and let's live that way and stop pretending this is a major imperial power. That sounds like fearful to me. Larry, cheerful or fearful on the UK economy? Cheerful. So you have been drinking George Osborne's Lucid. No, 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 I'm cheerful because in the end... um, Things will be sorted out. I'm a social democrat by nature, and I always think there are two. I think that you know, we're talking we're going to talk about books later. But we always think that A. A. Milne was right about the division between people. You're either a Tigger or an Eeyore, and Tiggers always bounce around thinking there's a solution to every problem, and the Eeyores think that every problem is really desperate. And Both were delusional characters. <clears throat> Both maybe, well, maybe I'm delusional, but I mean, I'm much more of a Tiggerish sort of person. I actually think that it's quite possible for people to work their way through problems, and I think the UK has really severe problems in the short term things are probably going to get worse. So I'm actually quite gloomy about the UK in the short term. But actually, in long term, I'm very, very, I'm quite positive about the UK. I think that the deeper the, the, deeper the problem, the more likely it is that we're going to get some real fundamental change. Hang on, that's not social democratic. That's Trotsky. No, it's not Trotsky at all. No, it isn't. Not at all. It's not Trotsky. What, the worst things are going to get, the, the bigger the, turnaround? I think things are probably going to get worse over the next six to 12 months. So I think George Osborne's plans for the economy are absolutely crazy. Um, and that does risk pushing the economy back into a double-dip recession. But I think that that will, that will probably make the make the pressure for reform, fundamental reform of the sort that Brendan's talking about, much more pertinent, much more pointed and much more um, and, br- and bring it forward. I think that the real danger for the UK would be if we sort of muddled through this and assume that we can just turn the clock back to the glory days of 2005, 2006. And in those circumstances, I am actually quite fearful because I think all we'll be doing there is stoking up, uh, stoking up another really big boom which will have dire consequences so actually i think that the while i'm while i'm quite pessimistic about the the near term i think that in the longer term i can foresee the uk diversifying out of financial services and its sort of addiction to the housing market into into a more into a more balanced you know grown-up economy but if, if we just go on thinking that we can just run the economy on the twin financial housing bubbles then we are living in a in a very dangerous fool's paradise i think jill cheerful or fearful I, i'm quite fearful actually i mean i'm I, I hate to draw upon personal experience but i'm now about to is that i've just come back from south wales which is where i grew up you know i i don't know what there is to do there 
you know, it, it makes me feel sad, actually, in many ways. I mean, I live in a beautiful street in London. I've got a lovely job. I, you know, I, I can't really complain much about my own life. But I really don't know what my, if, if I'm a school leaver in South Wales right now, I, I, I'm not sure what my prospects are. And, and when I read the headline in The Guardian a few weeks ago about how hard it was going to be for graduates to get jobs, I, I actually feel nothing but despair, actually. I mean, I, I, when I look at the Conservative Party or the coalition, dare I say, I, I see kind of bookkeeper mentality here, which is cutting costs without any recognition of the impact of that cost on, on revenues. Even I see the paper today in The Guardian, of course, yeah. that the Film Council has been cut. Now, there's, it, it, it's a problematic organisation. I certainly got criticisms of it. But, you know, what about the revenues and, and the other uh, uh, benefits uh, from true. I thought creative industries was one of the things we could do. Mm. You know, and suddenly that's gone. I, you know, another reason for despair, Larry. Well, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I, I was, I was slightly, take, I mean, I was slightly encouraged in some ways by last week's GDP figures, which were showed quite a strong bounce back. But it seemed to me they showed a strong bounce back because of government support for for the economy. I mean, that's the that's the, that's the problem. I think that, it was Alistair Darling's policies well, rather of than George Osborne's policies. Of that one percent, you know, getting on just more than a third came from the construction industry, and there probably wasn't very much construction going on without government government support things for like building schools for the future so is that as good as it gets then i think that for the short term 1.1 percent is as good as it gets and in the second half of this year um and in the early part of next year i think we're gonna um i think it's it's, it's conceivable to think that that the good times will roll for a bit longer particularly in in retailing because we've got a vat rise coming in the new year but i think the first three three six months of next year are going to be really hard now moving on but sticking with our theme of optimism The economist Paul Seabright believes that deep down, human beings all have a capacity for mistrust and violence. And yet he points out a paradox. Remarkably, we work together very well with people we don't know. That's the basis of his highly acclaimed book, The Company of Strangers, which has just been reissued with an update following the recent economic crisis. When he came into The Guardian, I asked him to explain his central idea. Paul Seabright, we normally think of markets as kind of competitive arenas where selfish actors engage with each other and try to do each other down. You're saying that we're actually a much more cooperative society than that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you think of what happens when you go out in the street in the morning on your way to work, you're able to tap into a fantastic cooperative enterprise. Everything from, you know, the people who bring you the newspaper, probably The Guardian, that you buy in the morning, fantastic team effort, to uh, the guys who put together the bus service that gets you to your office, to uh, all of the people there working uh, in your office, to the people who've made the grown the coffee and ground it to uh, give you your cappuccino that you drink halfway through the morning. Um, you're dependent on a fantastic team effort. And societies we know couldn't function without that. So actually, most of the people you meet in the course of your everyday work are your collaborators, not your competitors. Why would it be then that we're used to thinking of humans as being selfish creatures? How, how is it that we're able to cooperate with each other? Well, we do that through a lot of factors in our brains that have evolved to help us to decide who's a worthwhile person to cooperate with. And that's also what explains this tension between the fact that we're surrounded by people who are our collaborators, but at the same time we feel intensely anxious and competitive and stressed about who we can get to cooperate with, because the success in your life and in your career and so on typically depends upon being accepted as a cooperative partner by the people who are most successful and dynamic. And so we face this complex tension in our psychology between the fact that we have to work out 
who can be trusted and who we uh, can co- collaborate with and how we can persuade them to cooperate with us, but at the same time by this anxiety that maybe the people it's most useful to cooperate with won't want us. And so we have to keep trying to prove our own ability to be a useful collaborator with them. And I think that's what gives us this peculiar tension between competition and cooperation. But we have brains that have been doing that since the Stone Age, and those brains have evolved some extraordinarily sophisticated mechanisms to make that possible. Let's talk a bit more about the evolution because your book begins with the observation that most of what we tend to take for granted in our society and our economic interactions is based on an incredibly fragile foundation. So tell us more about the evolution. Okay, well, one of the things we know is that if we had brains that were literally able to calculate what was the best thing for us to do in every possible situation, they'd be as big as football stadiums. They wouldn't fit on our heads. And uh, so what happens is that natural selection has basically chosen shortcuts in the grey matter in our skulls to try to tell us what works best in most circumstances. They're not computers that can tell us exactly what's right. They're a whole network of sort of rules of thumb and shortcuts that can help us in most situations. And the shortcuts include all sorts of things that were tremendously useful for us in the Stone Age and are very dangerous for us today, like taking your opinions from the person who shouts loudest. That was probably very useful for a hunter-gatherer band, rather dangerous in the world of modern finance. But if you look around uh, at modern finance, uh, or you look around at a lot of the stuff that uh, seems to have gone wrong in modern economy, financial crisis based upon greedy actors trying to screw each other over, that would seem to be a pretty good uh, counterexample to the argument you just put out. I don't think that's quite right. Of course there's greed, but greed's been there all the time. And appealing to greed to explain the financial crisis is a little bit like appealing to gravity to explain plane crashes. Okay, Gravity's there all the time. It doesn't explain why you sometimes get a crash. What we need to know is what made the financial system come apart in the spectacular way it did. And I think the way to understand that is to reflect on the fact that When a financial system works well, it does so by persuading us that other people's greed can be combined with trustworthiness. So, you know, the person who takes our money and uses it to invest in some project does so because they can persuade us that they're going to give us back a reasonable return on that. And all financial systems are based on doing that. The more sophisticated the financial system, the more it means that we can put to one side the questions about whether most people are trustworthy most of the time. So if you think about uh, if somebody gives you a cheque for £50, you know that it's worth the same as a cheque for £50 from drawn on somebody else's back. You're not constantly having to compare whether one person's cheque is worth somebody else's cheque. And it's been put very well by an American financial economist called Gary Gorton. He says, that a a banking system, when it works well, allows people to get the benefit of finance without having to know anything about finance in exactly the same way as an electricity network and grid allows people to to use electricity without being electricians. And the great thing about that is actually you can rely on and trust the system most of the time. But it's like an autopilot in a plane that it works so well most of the time that Nobody thinks about what's going to happen on the rare occasions when it goes badly. And if the pilots are asleep when the autopilot stops working, then you've got a big problem. And paradoxically, they're more likely to be asleep the better the autopilot works most of the time. Your book, Company Strangers, is an ingenious fusion of Adam Smith and Charles Darwin. 
but I wonder sometimes when, when, when I'm reading it whether you're looking for evolutionary explanations for quite recent phenomenon. Um, you could say that your book is quite an optimistic reading of globalisation and the structures that underlie globalisation, and yet globalisation is a relatively recent phenomenon, 19th and 20th centuries. Well, it's less recent than that. I want to say that globalization in some sense is a product of the last 10,000 years, but I think of 10,000 years as recent in the story of our life as a species. I guess that uh, when, you, when you say I'm looking for evolutionary explanations for relatively recent phenomenon, that's exactly right. But the story isn't that um, we've evolved genetically to handle modern society. On the contrary, we evolved genetically to hand, uh, handle hunter-gatherer existence, and we've now been launched into modern society like people who, as I say in the book, have evolved to cope with the land and are now swimming out to the open sea. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to handle that new challenge very well. In lots of ways, we, um, we mess it up. But it's extraordinary that we manage it as well as we do. And I think that it's important to understand why globalization works as well as it does in order to understand its fragilities in exactly the same way as uh, a doctor can't understand why the body breaks down under the attacks of disease unless the doctor also understands why the body works so amazingly well most of the time. Paul Seabright there and his book, The Company of Strangers, A Natural History of Economic Life, is published by Princeton University Press. Now, you've all had a chance to think, so I want to go around the table and get your reading list for this summer. Jill Trainer, let's begin with you. Thank you, Aditya. Well, I've, I confess before this podcast started that I'm uh, currently reading Charlie in the Great Grass Elevator with my six-year-old. We're going through all the Ronald Dahl. So who's while reading, I'm who's reading, reading that, it to whom? <laughs> Larry, that's a delightful question. <laughs> but I've decided, because I am so fond of Larry Ellis, against who, uh, who I sit next to, I'm going to recommend his book, which I confess I haven't read yet, but it's due to be published at any time. September. And it's something to do with ethics, and it's written with the Archbishop of Canterbury. Oh, my Lord. You're so really you going to take that away and holiday with you? He isn't, it's he's going to give me a copy, <laughs> but he's, you're going to give me a copy. I'll give you a po- copy, a proof copy. A proof copy, there you go. That's what I'm going to read. Brendan McSweeney, <laughs> your reading list for this summer. You can, you can steer a middle path between Roald Dahl and Rowan Williams. I, I have a long reading list, so I'll, I'll uh, restrict it to perhaps three. Go on. Uh, the first one is Daniel Dorling's Injustice, Why Social Inequality Persists. And that's not just a, an, 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 an explanation as, as, about the consequence of inequality, but even from the, the perspective of the economy, this is a, an excellent and scholarly book demonstrating how inequality not only affects the disadvantage, but is economically undermining. It's like the idea that egoists should be actually should be altruists. So it's a, an, an excellent uh, book um, because we, we, we kind of lived in the era when, again, my friend Tony Blair was indifferent to the rise of the of, of the elite. And this points out the economic and indeed the social consequences of inequality. So I'd strongly recommend Daniel Dorling. I'm certainly going to read it. In terms of where we've come from, I noticed the, w- one of the things that disturbed me is the banalities of the debate among the prospective leaders of the, of the Labour Party and Alan Johnson saying we shouldn't engage in navel-gazing. But I think we need to reflect on how we came and how the Labour Party became a neoliberal party. So uh, I'm also going to be reading David Harvey's A Brief History of Neoliberalism. And then among other books I mentioned, in in terms of fiction, I think as economic resources and activity moves eastwards, I think we need to know more about that. And rather than relying on the sort of stereotypes of uh, that management consultants use, works like Hofstede, 
I'm also reading Arvinda Adika's White Tiger, which is work of fiction, but it's really insightful into the complexities, the dynamics of, of India. Larry Lee, what are you packing for the, for the beach? Well, I'm not packing any uh, economics books, that's for sure. Just, I've just been reading um, Anatole Kaletsky's Capitalism 4.0. Zero, which I'm just about to review, which I did enjoy actually. I mean, Anatole, Anatole's the ticker's ticker, I think. I mean, he's the, he's the most upbeat person in the world. So, I mean, I, if people wanted to read a book about economics, that's probably a good one for the summer. Um, the books I'm reading, I'm going to read some novels. I'm going to read Ian McEwan's Solar. Uh, I like Ian McEwan, and uh, I haven't read that. Um, I am a big D.H. Lawrence fan, so I'm going to read Women in Love uh, again. How many times have you read that? <laughs> oh, loads of times. I even name, I, even, even name one of my daughters after one of the characters in Women in Love. And um, I'm going to read the um, the first Ian Rankin book after the Rebus series, which I think is called The Complaint. Um, but it's the, I, 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 I love I love the the Rebus series, and I'm quite interested to see uh, how Ian Rankin has done now that he's uh, pensioned off Rebus. So that's what I'm going to read. And what economics or business book do you think people should be reading this summer? If you had to make one recommendation. Well, as I said, I thought Anatole's book. You're not seriously going to recommend Anatole Kaletsky. Why can't I recommend Anatole? Don't you like Anatole? <laughs> I mean, I disagree, actually, I disagree with quite a lot of what he says, but it's a very good read. And it's well, like, it's about, first of all, it's about 500 pages long, so no, it's, it's a bit not. of a thumper to take no, around no, with no, it's, you. It's Secondly, it's about 300 it's, it's, pages. While, you know, it's, it's so optimistic, you, you think he's on helium. Yes, but it's good for people like me who have a, you know, who have a sort of more realistic view, I would say, to read, read something which is kind of... Um, Another, um, what, else, what else could I recommend? I read loads of economics books, but I wouldn't recommend very many of them for, for people to take on holiday, this is, I should say. This is the man, dear listener, who during his sabbatical, his four weeks off, he read what? General Theory by Keynes, Road Serfdom by Hayek. What were the other two? Uh, I read The Great Transformation. By Karl Polanyi, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. classic. Yeah, and uh, The Open Society and Its Enemies by, by Karl, Karl Popper. Popper. But now you know why he's so informed when he writes, you see. But I wouldn't recommend any... They're, they're not, not, not too many of those are the sort of stuff you'd want to read on a beach, are they? Great Transformation. Keynes' uh, general theory is very, very readable and very well written. It's very well written, but I can imagine that people would wake up in the hot sun with a book on their face. I think so, yes. After three or four pages, I, you know, it's, love it, love it though I do. I'm not sure that the great man would be my holiday, no. holiday, holiday read. Well, that's all for this week, and that's it from us until September. We're taking what some might agree is a well-earned break. But join us again in the autumn, where we already have a bevy of exciting guests lined up it says here. My thanks to Brendan McSweeney, Jill Trainer, and Larry Elliott, producers Phil Maynard. I'm Adit Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.